welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Villains are very satisfying. Oftentimes in narratives, heroes are maybe a little bland, boring. Heroes are in the unfortunate position, many times, of simply reacting. There is a crisis, or a villain is doing something, and the hero has to catch up, or play cleanup, and that doesn't give them a lot of space to do their own thing. Villains, on the other hand, nearly always act rather than react. The villain is the one who creates the problem for the narrative. They are the one who is out there being themselves, doing what they want to do, having fun while they're doing it, and causing the plot to happen. That means that a lot of the time, villains are far more attractive and interesting than heroes are. And oftentimes, we kind of root for the villains even when we're, you know, rooting against them. When I watch Die Hard, I'm kind of sort of rooting for Hans Gruber every single time. Villains are fun, and also, they are useful when your bad guy is some kind of faceless force of nature. Sometimes in historical narratives, you're dealing with something that doesn't have a single human face. A disaster, a natural phenomena, a disease. So, if your narrative allows it, you can make a human face to play that villain role. Like in the classic 1990s movie Twister. You don't just have Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt doing a bunch of tornado stuff. You have them going toe-to-toe and outracing Carrie Elways, who plays an evil tornado hunter. As if evil tornado hunters were a thing that existed. He is the hateable and more interesting human face that is also in the narrative where the real villain and the real crisis is a natural phenomenon. When we talk about history and when we write history, there's always this tension. This tension between narrative and reportage, something I think about a lot when I'm making episodes for this show or when I'm speaking to you. What makes for a good story and what makes for an interesting narrative and what is real are not necessarily the same thing. Obviously, any kind of historical narrative is a compromise. We have to leave things out, we have to sum things up, and we have to turn it into something that's compelling and interesting for the audience Otherwise, nobody's going to care and pay attention and tune into the next episode of the podcast or read the next chapter of the book or what have you. But sometimes historical communicators like me can succumb a bit too much to narrative convention and end up casting people in the villain role where the narrative calls for it, but the facts don't necessarily support it. This is a story about a man who got cast in that villain role after he was dead. A man called Gaten Duga, better known to the world as Patient Zero. He is a man who died of AIDS in 1984 
and for many years he was vilified not only as the man who brought AIDS to North America, but spread it around primarily in California and New York because he was an airline steward. He was going from city to city and place to place and had a jet-setting lifestyle, and he was able to have sexual conquest and be a disease vector in every city he landed in and took off from. Now, this story seems to make superficial sense. After all, AIDS had to come from somewhere. It had to be spread by someone. And doesn't it make sense that somebody with a job like an airline steward would be in a position to spread it around? But it's more complicated than that. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. First, I want to talk about how this idea even came about in the first place. We didn't always know that AIDS was a communicable disease, which seems strange to think about if you are somebody my age. I was born in 1980, and growing up in middle school and high school, the fact that AIDS was communicable and that teenagers such as myself should practice safer sex if we did have sex was just common sense. However, that common knowledge was only about a decade old when I was in middle school and high school, even in the 1980s, a lot of people didn't know or didn't think that AIDS could be passed from person to person. One of the big linchpins of figuring out that AIDS was communicable was a 1984 study published in the American Journal of Medicine called Cluster in Cases of the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And this study sought to test a hypothesis that AIDS was indeed spread specifically by sexual contact. In this study, the researchers looked at 40 gay men who had been diagnosed with AIDS and mostly lived in Southern California. They found patterns in their research. Many of the men had had sexual contact with each other or with intermediaries, like they were one or two steps away from each other. And there was one data point, kind of in the middle, that stood out to the researchers. They labeled this patient as patient O. O, in this case, stood for outside Southern California. After all, when the researchers published this study in the American Journal of Medicine, they did not use these patients' given names. Instead, they used geographic designations. For example, a patient from New York was called New York. Uh, other patients from areas around Southern California had Southern California place names. And patient O stood for outside Southern California. The researchers said of this patient, quote, If the infectious agent hypothesis is true, patient O may be an example of a carrier carrier is in quotes, again, this is a new idea and they want to emphasize that, of such an agent. He had had sexual contact with eight other AIDS patients and was the possible source of AIDS for at least three of them. Two of these three men had been his partners before he had had overt signs of Kaposi's sarcoma. Unquote. Kaposi's sarcoma, by the way, is a cancer around lymph nodes that usually results in dark, discolored red or purple lesions in that area. And for a long time, Kaposi's sarcoma was kind of the visual signifier of whether or not somebody had AIDS. If you've seen the 1990s movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, 
that sarcoma is the symptom that clues him into his having AIDS. And I am talking quite a bit about 1990s movies today, for some reason. However, this is a story about a man being vilified in the public imagination. And an academic study published in a medical journal that anonymizes the names of the patients, the names of their data points, is not quite enough to turn somebody into a villain in the popular imagination. That only happened when a journalist named Randy Schiltz picked up the study and started looking into its background. Randy Schiltz was a journalist and gay activist, and a lot of what I'm going to say in this podcast is going to make me sound like I'm not much of a fan of him, but I sort of have a weird admiration for him, even though he did a lot of things and had an attitude that I don't really agree with or like. Um, he went to the University of Oregon. He wrote for alt-weeklies, uh, just like I did. He called out the Reagan administration on a bunch of their bad activities, but we'll get to that later. But Randy Schiltz got a hold of this study and dug into the background for his 1987 book, and the band played on, which outlined the early history of the AIDS epidemic in North America. In this book, Schiltz didn't refer to patient O as patient O. He was able to find men who had had sexual contact with the guys from the study and were able to talk about biographical information of the members of the study in general and patient O in particular. Patient O was in fact named Gaten Duga. He was a Quebecois flight attendant who enjoyed himself very much in Southern California. Duga has a prominent role in Schiltz's book, and I'm not going to describe it. I will let Schiltz speak for himself. He wrote, quote, Gaten Duga would walk into a gay bar, scan the crowd, and announce to his friends, I am the prettiest one. Usually, his friends had to agree he was right. Gaten was the man everyone wanted, the ideal for this community at this time and in this place. His sandy hair fell boyishly over his forehead, his mouth easily curled into an inviting smile, and his laugh could flood color into a room of black and white. He bought his clothes in the trendiest shops of Paris and London. He vacationed in Mexico and on the Caribbean beaches. Americans tumbled for his soft Quebecois accent and his sensual magnetism. There was no place that a 28-year-old airline steward would rather have the boys fall for him than in San Francisco. Here, Gaten could satisfy his voracious sexual appetite with the beautiful California men he liked so much. He returned from every stroll down Castro Street with a pocket full of matchbook covers and napkins that were crowded with addresses and phone numbers. He recorded names of his most passionate admirers in his fabric-covered address book. But lovers were like suntans to him. They would be so wonderful, so sexy for a few days, and then fade. At times, Gaten would study his address book with genuine curiosity, trying to recall who this or that person was. A little later on, Schultz writes... At the first opportunity on the dance floor, Gaten stripped off his t-shirt and fished out a bottle of poppers, nitrite inhalants, from his jeans pocket in one swift, practiced move. 
fine blonde hair outlined the trim natural proportions of his chest. He felt strong and vital. He didn't feel like he had cancer at all. That was what the doctor had said after cutting the bump from his face. Gaten had one small purplish spot removed to satisfy his vanity. The doctor had wanted it for a biopsy. Two weeks later, a report came back from New York, and a Toronto specialist told Gaten he had Kaposi's sarcoma, a bizarre skin cancer that hardly anybody got. Maybe that explained why his lymph nodes had been swollen for a year. Gaden hadn't told friends until June, after the biopsy. He was terrified at first, but he consoled himself with the knowledge that you can beat cancer. He had created a life in which he could have everything and everyone he wanted. He'd figure a way around this cancer, too. Unquote. Schiltz, in his book, describes Dugas as being kind of like Johnny Appleseed, but for an incurable, fatal disease. When Schultz's book came out in 1987, Dugas was heavily promoted as the villain, and he almost immediately became the face of AIDS. The New York Post, never a publication to pass up a sensationalistic headline, called him the man who gave us AIDS. And this makes sense. Schultz's description of Dugas as promiscuous, drug-using, happy-go-lucky, kind of Byronic and hedonistic, jibes with some of the worst stereotypes about gay men in the 1980s, or, for that matter, gay men now. And feeding into stereotypes like this is what makes Schiltz a somewhat controversial figure even to this day. Schiltz, who was gay himself and who also died of AIDS in 1994, he did not shy away from criticizing elements of gay culture, like bathhouses, that he saw as unsafe and problematic. Not being gay myself, I don't feel equipped to critique his particular brand of respectability politics, but I understand why he has a mixed legacy in queer circles. But, and the band played on, is not a book about Gaten Duga. It is a book about the U.S. government's overall response to AIDS in the first parts of the 1980s. And Dugas was thrust into that villain role by readers, by the media, and by Schiltz's own publisher, who heavily promoted him as the book's bad guy. But the bulk of the book is actually about the Reagan administration. And I will actually let Schiltz speak for himself. Here he is in an interview prior to his death about why AIDS got so bad in the United States, and the message he was trying to send with And the Band Played On. The fact is AIDS was allowed to happen in this country because our institutions did not respond. And that includes the gay community, the scientific establishment, and also includes, I think, uh, and, and a star billing, the federal government. Clearly, it was a very bad time to have a new epidemic to appear in June of 1981, which was just five months into the first term of the Reagan administration. This was an administration that was committed to doing one thing beyond all else, and that's to keep the lid on domestic spending. So throughout the early years of the epidemic, as scientists and public health officials became increasingly concerned and wrote increasingly dire predictions in their memos to the Reagan administration saying, we need money, we've got to move on this, we've got a disaster ahead, they were consistently ignored 
by an administration that did not want to spend any money on domestic programs, much less on domestic programs that were going to fight a disease that was essentially just killing off gay men and intravenous drug users. That's all well and good, and history has pretty much vindicated Schiltz in his criticisms of the Reagan administration's poor response to a major public health crisis. However, that doesn't change the fact that Schiltz played into fairly salacious stereotypes about gay men and the popular imagination, rather than villainizing the government and public health officials and the overall ramshackle state of the U.S.'s healthcare infrastructure, decided to villainize an individual. After all, having institutions and structures in that villain role is just not narratively satisfying. But having one evil gay guy who's dead and can't defend himself, well, that's a different matter. In the years since Schultz's book came out, medical, historical, and journalistic experts have all taken issue with how Schultz characterized Dugas, sourced his research, and interpreted medical data. In 2016, a study published in the journal Nature concluded that AIDS arrived in North America before Dugas even had it. Dugas's blood was sampled in 1983, and he was hired by Air Canada in 1974, and at the time researchers thought that maybe he was not just the first person to have that strain of AIDS, but AIDS itself, at least in North America, hence the popular appellation Patient Zero a misreading of that term, patient O. However, as the AIDS epidemic climbed, more and more researchers, scientists, and health authorities found that that strain in North America existed far before Dugas' travels starting in 1974. He couldn't have been patient zero. There were other patients with that same strain going as far back as 1969, in North America. Dugas was one person to have AIDS during a pandemic. He was not the person who caused a pandemic. And by the way, that term patient zero, that wasn't a term epidemiologists or health officials used often to talk about the first patient with an outbreak. No, patient zero, which is now a fairly common term, was basically invented by Randy Schiltz because he misread patient O as patient zero. But now it's something that a lot of people use, even in the context of health and scientific research. Uh, Dr. Harold Jaffe, one of the authors of the Nature Study that exonerated Dugas in 2016, told the New York Times, quote, I don't remember who first used it, but after Randy Schultz did, we started saying it ourselves, unquote. So this is an incident of a book written for a popular audience having an effect on the scientific field that it was attempting to popularize. Inadvertently, but still. One of the reasons that Dugas figured prominently in the early years of AIDS research is that he provided a lot of data when data was scarce. Historian Richard McKay, writing in the Bulletin of History of Medicine in 2014, two years before the definitive Dugas exonerating study would come out in 2016, wrote, quote, Dugas was one of many gay men of the time who viewed medical claims and advice with skepticism. 
Nonetheless, he had been very helpful with researchers from the CDC, providing them in 1982 with the best early set of records for contact tracing they could find. 72 names of his previous sexual contacts. This assistance would later garner him a central position in their cluster diagram, and via Schultz, posthumous notoriety. After living in Vancouver for most of 1983, he became sick and returned home to Quebec City, where he spent his remaining days with his family until his death in March 1984. Unquote. Now, did Gaten Dugas spread AIDS to more than a few people? Yes, absolutely. I am not here to give you some kind of revisionist take, like the guy that the New York Post blamed for the entire North American epidemic was good, actually. That is not my project here. What I am here to do is tell you that when stories and historical narratives line up with our expectations for narrative convention, be skeptical. When something can be laid at the feet of a single bad actor, especially a single bad actor who conforms to pre-existing stereotypes of marginalized groups, you're probably not getting the whole story. And in general, it is systems, institutions, and whole networks of people and things working or not working in concert that cause large-scale problems like epidemics and pandemics, much, much more so than anything one guy did. So if you're looking for a target for anger or outrage or frustration, look there. Look at the system failures. Look at the way that governments and public health and communication networks don't work for you. I know it's harder to be angry at a system. I know it's harder to be angry at a large network that is bigger than any one person, but that is far more justified. And if we can actually get some solutions going, we'll actually help more people in the long run. 